0: Hi, this is Elizabeth, and I've listened to every single episode of the When Dating Hurts podcast. I have not been in an abusive relationship myself, but I've had friends who have, and it's good to know the signs early to get out early. Bill, thank you for all that you do.
1: The When Dating Hurts podcast is rated one of the most popular relationships podcasts in the world. Why is that? It's our guests. Whether you're listening to subject matter experts or domestic violence survivors, you know you're hearing what you need to know. And that is the truth about dating and domestic violence. Why it happens, how it happens, when it happens, where it happens and how victims become survivors. This podcast is a powerful way for you, your friends, and your family to stay informed and stay safe. Thank you for your support. This conversation with police officer, Lieutenant Mark Wynn is priceless for its insightful information from a veteran law enforcement officer's point of view. I urge you to take notes. Mark Wynn wasn't taught about domestic violence in a classroom. He learned it the hard way from 10 years of physical and emotional abuse brought daily by his monster stepfather. A stepfather so vicious he nearly killed Mark's mother. Mark and his brother were also on the receiving end of fierce abuse. When we think of survivors, we rarely think about our men and women in blue. But this When Dating Hurts episode will take you to places you've probably never seen before. We're joined by Lieutenant Mark Wynn. The reason that Mark and his group stepped forward is there's a documentary coming out very soon, might be out by the time you hear this. That is called, This is Where I Learned Not to Sleep. And I've seen it. It runs, I think, about 38 minutes or so. And it's fabulous. I mean, it's just so crafted and tells his story, which he's going to tell us. So I want to welcome Mark to the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you, Mark.
0: Thank you, Bill. It's my pleasure.
1: Good. So, Mark, we're going to let you tell your story. I wonder if you could kind of roll the calendar way back to the 1950s, and tell us some about your biological parents at that time and who's at home and what's going on before you meet up with your stepfather later. Well, I'm a Tennessean and my
0: family, my brother, my three sisters and my mother, you know, we're living a, a, a kind of a quiet life here in Tennessee and, and my, my parents separated. And my mother met a man from Texas who was handsome, charismatic, One of those uh, things that, you know, we tell victims today to be careful of one of those rush relationships and you don't know it until it happens to you. And then it was a rush relationship and they married and he moved us all to the state of Texas in uh, 1959, I believe it was. Things were okay for a while, as I remember, but then they started getting bad. And for nearly 10 years, he did things to us that You know, that I later that I later put people in prison for as a police officer, my sisters and my brother. Oh, they all left. My brother actually, uh, this was in the mid '60s. My brother ran away from home at 16, joined the Marine Corps at 17, went to Vietnam at 18, and just give an example of how things were happening. I remember Love Field was the airport in Dallas for years before DFW was built, and. We were at Love Field, put him on a plane to go to Vietnam. And I said, Don't right, you worry, you know, you're going to get hurt in Vietnam. He said, I'm not worried about that. I just want to get out of the house. So he left one war to go to another one. Um, so that was his experience. Of course, my two older sisters, they, as soon as they were old enough to leave, they, they left. But during those 10 years, I watched my stepfather brutalize my mother uh, over and over again beater miscarriages. The violence was just, it wasn't, not every day, but it was, it, it was surgical. There was an intent to it and it worked. It kept us in absolute fear until my mother started to fight back. And, and it's not an unusual thing in these these moments where you see victims uh, they go through a, there's a there's a list of things, you know, victims go through. They appease the offender. They they submit themselves to sexual assault. They negotiate. They promise. They withdraw. Some in the end, as, as you probably well know, there are a lot of women in prison for killing their spouses. They resort to violence, but there's usually a, a context there. And I, we lived in that in that history, and my mother eventually started fighting back. And I think what she saw was that I was coming of age, and I think in the back of her mind, she worried that I would kill him because my brother and I actually we tried to when we were younger. So this is a short list, and there's more that I can fill in
1: if you like. So, give me a little bit of detail into you and your brother thought about or tried to kill him. Tell me about that a little bit. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah. I think it's 1962 and we'd seen abuse. We, you know, hospital visits, the, you know, the police coming to the house, the, the whole range, you know, living like gypsies. He was a crop duster. So we moved around we lived in so many small towns in Texas. Um, and my brother and I decided to kill him. Now he was an alcoholic. So he drank quite a bit. And as I remember, you know, we snuck into his bedroom and got a, a bottle of Mad Dog, you know, most cops you know Mad Dog is Mogan David and fine wine to him and and we emptied it out while he was asleep and filled it up with uh, poisonous bug spray and put it back on his nightstand and he drank all of it about an hour later and it didn't, it didn't impact him at all and i tell cops that story and i send the documentary and i i think it's now it's funny <laughs> but but if he died and which was our attention we would have been arrested you know a seven-year-old and 12-year-old killed stepfather those stories happen today. I mean, this is when you push a human to their limits. This is, these are things that happen. But what would have happened to us, and I truly believe this, we would have been arrested. And in the 60s, there was no sophisticated juvenile system. They put children and young adults in the same holding cells together. I would have been brutalized, more than likely raped. You know, There's a lot of rape in the correction systems then now. I would have graduated into the adult prison system. And I didn't think about that much until I got into policing. And I saw me on the faces of children that I responded to. So in other words, it was the oddest thing. I wanted to be a cop because I wanted to lock him up and others like him. But to do that, I had to walk back into my own trauma over and over and over and over again. To talk to women who look like my mother, to arrest offenders who look like my stepfather, and I had to get used to that. Um, and I, and I would see things that other officers I work with couldn't see because there is a there's a there's a whole communication system inside violence that people don't know much about it unless you live with someone who you knows violence, you know, the things they're going to do before they hit you, you know, the words they use, you know, their attitude before it happens. I could see that it was almost like I could, a veil had been lifted off my eyes when I became a cop and I could see it. And no, other cops couldn't see it. So um, having that experience as a survivor I talked my agency into letting me train our young recruits at our academy at the Nashville Metropolitan Police Academy. And I cut through the statistics and the legal definitions and said, let me tell you what it's like to live a death's door. And it made a difference in my agency. And, uh, you know, over the years, I hope it made a difference to, um, to victims who – we're too afraid to call the police. And then that's a whole other thing. I mean, when you're living in violence and you're afraid of the police, you're stuck in the middle and you can't get out. This is one of the reasons why people have these conversations with, well, I don't understand this. Why, why does she stay? And that's that's a legitimate question. But the leaving is the process. It's not an event. It's like when I work with rape victims, you know, disclosure is a process. You have to understand those circumstances because this is not somebody who got robbed at an ATM. This is somebody who's living with the offender. All of that experience you know, adds up. Ten years is living in it and then 45 years in law enforcement now. So that's, you know, I'm 55 years into this work. And I've had other friends say, don't they get it yet? Haven't you done this enough? And you say, no, there's another generation ready to go. I'm training millennial cops now. And I've trained Z and X and, you know, uh, <laughs> all the generations because they don't know until they step into a classroom and you say, let me tell you what you're about to do. You're about to do something that can either save a life or get someone killed. Including yourself? Absolutely. It's it's uh, Offenders are concerned about staying in control. This is pretty simple. What will they do to maintain that control is what we're now trying to explain to young officers because if, if I believe you're taking something away from me that I believe belongs to me I'll fight you for that and that's that's that entitlement it's the privilege it's the um, it's the male privilege that is
1: you know you add that with violence and that's the heartbeats of domestic violence so with all the years the fifty five years of some of it living with it in your own house mm-hmm. coming to visit you and beat you up and your mother and Brother, and then all the time is doing police work. When you think of the mind of somebody that perpetrates this, what do you think is in there that makes them want to do this? That becomes so important to them for them to do this. It's an interesting question, Bill. In '85, here
0: in Nashville, a good friend of mine, Amy Rosenthal, who was an advocate, a DV advocate, and she worked in our, she worked with homicide survivors. This therapist, uh, she decided to start a batter's intervention program. And batter's intervention came out of Duluth. Ellen Pence, Michael Paymar created it in the '80s. It was peer counseling, 26, 52-week program, a, a strict curriculum to deal with behavior of offenders. There's only few in the country at the time, and and, and Amy just started, just decided to start a program here called Peace. She let me uh, actually co-facilitate some of the meetings. I got to hear for the first time, even though I was an active investigative officer, I was interrogating, interviewing, arresting offenders. I'd never heard them in a setting where they were free to say what they wanted to say. And the curriculum is designed for whatever the resistance is. And then they hopefully you get them at a point in the intervention program where they say, it's me, it's my fault, hell, I did it. I sit in on these programs and I heard these men talk about why they did what they did, how they did what they did, and some that said I don't want to do this anymore. In the film, by the way, um, I'm, I'm in an intervention program in New Mexico when that was a film I did in '86 or '87 for the Justice Department, and they let me sit in the program. And, I, and the same kind of thing happened, but I did it here in Nashville. But anyway, that's when I really started to think about motives. You know what's going on, and then I, as a cop, really all you need to do is to get your evidence. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt that it happened, and you charge and you go on to court. But rarely did I see in police sciences, we were looking at what's behind it all. you know. So over the years, I've met people who have drawn me a clear picture. Uh, Bruce, Bruce Perry, who's a child psychologist and neurologist down in Baylor in Waco, has got a whole institute where they're studying brain development of children who are exposed to domestic violence. and. As a police instructor, I used to, uh, and I still do this today. I teach how do you respond to children at the scene, and I used to say Bo- boys age four or five start to identify with the aggressor, and they start to be violent towards little girls often, and that's that's true. But it's not where it really starts. Doctor Perry puts it more at uh, one year old and two year old, three year old, because that's when your brain is spongy and it absorbs culture and language, and and you know you learn to be a human. If you expose that child at that age, then the brain actually physically grows differently. You now your brain can heal itself, but when we talk about learned behavior, this is where it starts. And you know, eighty to ninety percent of offenders learn this behavior. It's like racism or homophobia, or you know, all those isms. You don't. You're not born with them. That has to be input. That program has to be put in the, in your computer. And that's what happens often is that they do it. It works. And they just content, and They refine it until they become an adult and then do it as long as it works. Because, you know, it's, it's about them, you know, doing what they know works, which is controlling people, uh, and it may mean using violence. So coercion, threats, intimidation, you know, denying your food, your religion, your health care, those are all sort of surgical things that offenders do. It's very exact. Because they they saw it as a child that offenders will deny you the essentials of life to keep you under control. The deadly moments are when the victim says, not anymore. And that's when they say, you can't do this to me. And that's when the offender says, well, no, if in the past I've only threatened you, now I'm really going to hurt you. And this is when three quarters of the victims who are killed are killed. This is when they're leaving. So, uh, it, it, th- this is a topic, Bill, as you can imagine, that, that takes hours and hours and hours to explain. But for me, as a police instructor and as a police detective, um, I had the advantage of, of living through it and then seeing it as somebody who held offenders accountable. It made it easier for me. We talk more about that along the way, about who, who else is in uniform, who
1: are survivors. That's a whole other story. For those out there who might think that people who are offenders, who are abusers are born that way, would you say, no, you're not buying it? Those are the excuses we hear. It's, it's,
0: it's projection on someone else. It's not my fault. You know, they did something. They made me say something, They made me do something. They made me drink. I mean, that's part of the not holding yourself accountable. So that's, that's usual tactics. As a matter of fact, one of the other elements of being a good criminal investigator or a good advocate is understanding how how and why the offender manipulates the victim and these offenders they find people with kind hearts they have a, such a good talent at that and they know someone with a good heart is easier to you know easier to to mold into the victim that they want And the other part of it too, Bill, is that, and I I just reviewed a case out of Texas, Melissa Lucio, who was on death row for allegedly killing her two-year-old, and they were going to put her to death. And we managed to review the case and through the Innocence Project and get the the death sentence repealed. She's going to retrial. But this woman was raped at four and five, all through her childhood, beaten and abused as an adult. She had three abusive husbands, 13 children. When you grow up in coercion, then you, as the child witness who's exposed, are an easier target. So there's, these offenders find the right target. Most criminals know, you know, I've had criminals over the years tell me, "I've been doing this longer than you. I know who my targets are." So that is a thing that that I'm stressed when I talk to cops. This is not just impromptu, you know, uh, you know spontaneous they're looking they're looking for their next target
1: one of the things i've seen in interviewing on this podcast and interviewing survivors and i've seen this even before i did this but there's some of the nicest people you could possibly meet are the survivors they're sweet nice intelligent well spoken they can describe beginning middle and end of what happened to them they're great people and you know once they get out they remain great people who now want to help other victims to become survivors or help other survivors. A lot of people that contact me say things like, I thought I was so alone. I thought it was only me. I wondered, I I bought into the idea of, of maybe I was causing this person to do this because of course they've been coached or beaten into that position, but they kind of buy into it after a while. They, they run with that. One of the things I ran into, you know, probably 10 years ago now was the idea that people who do this, people who do perpetrate, people who do abuse, that is purely intentional. I mean, they know what they're doing, even though they'll tell you, well, I didn't realize that, or "You know, this is just the way I roll, or whatever these things are. But it's like, no. No, you know, you know what you were doing, and you will probe around, and you will try things. Some things work better than others as you move from victim to victim, or you stay on one victim. They know how to bring the rewards. After they smash her cell phone, they'll buy her a nice new one. So that's a reward after a punishment. So it's punishment, rewards. Give them candy, give them a slap. Yeah.
0: Pure predation, Bill. I mean, it's it, you study animals. you got to find the weakest to survive as a predator. And this is evident when we look at rape. Domestic violence is not just a single event it's a combination there's there it's interconnected co-occurring with other crimes when you've got domestic violence, most often you've got sex assault, you'll have strangulation, you'll have stalking, you'll have child abuse. These crimes are really connected and bonded together which which means historically we would just say, well, that's just domestic violence, but we have somebody have a specialist who work rape. You can't do that anymore We, we know that offenders they also rape their victims, and because it makes perfect sense. If I if I'm callous enough to, to to break your nose on Monday night, raping you Wednesday night is no big deal to me. And I've had victims tell me this: I submit to him. That's how I survive. So rape rape is another another element to it. So we have to look at it that way. I mean, you have to draw a contextual picture of the crime. When you do that, you see the victim's journey, and it's it's hellacious. You add difficulty to it where she's poor, she doesn't speak English, she's older, she's black, she's brown, and those people automatically have trouble with the. If we're talking about the criminal justice system, they're automatically in a worse place. But well, she's undocumented, so we have to be, she's illegal, or she's black and she's angry. You know, uh, black women are as violent as men. They're not. That's not true. So you have to deal with a mis misconceptions about violence against women to help victims and sometimes you know court systems are biased bias is normal it's not abnormal and those old biases seep through and i talk to cops all the time about it you know they'll say what's your what's your problem and they say well she was loud she was screaming she was drunk and i'm going okay so what that's that against the law no, but it's irritating. And so, so now she looks like somebody's irritating to you. Now your perception of him is colored because you think, well, no wonder he's doing this because look at her. You have to understand her journey. And if you don't, you've made sure that you're basically enabling an offender. And that's collusion with a criminal. So all these things are factored in, or you have to factor them in to make sure the law keeps its promise because justice didn't want to see your station in life. The Statue of Justice, to me, it always, I, I love the law, means that the law is gender-blind. It's blind to your politics and to your nationality. It's its a great leveler, and the sword cuts both ways. And I saw that as I moved on in my policing. I saw the high numbers of domestic violence inside the ranks of policing. So I started investigating and arrested cops
1: had some people on here whose husband was a policeman, or in some cases, she was a police woman. He was a policeman, and this was going on at home. And,
0: and Bill, forgive me. I'm, this is such a rich topic. I'm kind of rambling. I hope I don't mean to be.
1: It's very interesting. It's fine. So one of the things I wanted you to talk about was the final scene with your stepfather. What was going on? And I know that you and your mother fled after this, but why don't you take us through what happened? What was the final act with, uh, with the stepfather? So we were living in
0: a small sort of a shack uh, along the railroad tracks and south of Dallas in Lancaster, Texas. And they, they were arguing. I don't know what it was about. I mean, it was she, she knew how to survive, but at some point she started fighting back. And this was one of those moments and he hit her, knocked her out in the kitchen and I heard her body fall and I thought it, it actually sounded like a gunshot had gone off in the in the kitchen. And because I, I survived for 10 years with this guy, I knew what not to do to, to survive myself. So I, I didn't run in the kitchen. I just stepped into the doorway and, and I saw him standing over her body in the kitchen and he, she was out. She looked dead to me and he opened the refrigerator door, got a can of beer out and opened it and he walked out onto the, to the side porch of the house. I got a rag and rubbed the. Uh, her face was covered in blood. I got the blood out of her face, and I saw she was alive. And she pushed herself up on the floor and and, and scooped up a steak knife and was going to stab him. And I was way ahead of her. Um, and I took the knife out of her hand. I said, "Don't, don't, don't. You, you, it won't kill him, and you'll go to jail, and and, and my sister and I'll be stuck." That's you know that's pretty sophisticated for a teenager to be reasoning through. I was playing little league baseball there in, in uh, Lancaster, and I had a I had a my glove and bat, and she just grabbed my bat and walked out on the porch and hit him in the back of the head He, he fractured his skull, uh, knocked him out. And he fell off the porch, and the, the police arrived. They took us to a little substation, and uh, old old death sergeant there. Heard the story, and this is—you have to understand—this is in the '60s, so no criminal codes, no warrantless arrests, no training. It was all being—they made it up as they went along. That's how domestic violence was dealt with in those years. But the old sergeant said, "Look," he said, "Put the man in the holding cell, charge him with public drunk. My mother's covered in blood. Take him home." And they did. They drove us back to our house, and we threw everything into our car and ran with the clothes on our back. And that was the last time I saw him. And I didn't talk about it for years. Um, even though I, it was in me and I used it as a tool to educate other people, I never really talked about my own experience until this friend of mine, Amy Rosenthal said, you gotta talk about this. And I said, why? She said, cause men don't talk about this. And I and I, I saw that. I saw women survivors, you know, talked about their experiences. So I did, I started, I did a training at my academy for my command staff, my, the chiefs, you know, and I told them my history and couldn't believe I did it. Um, that was in the early 80s. Several of them came up to me after the class and said, we lived your life. You, your story is our story. But nobody even knew that but me. And they didn't broadcast it. It was like it was a secret. We're secret survivors in uniform. and We don't want to talk about it.
1: So why do you think that is? I mean, is it just it's such an embarrassing thing to have in your house? Do you think? Or is it, I mean, in your case, you weren't beaten by a woman, you were beaten by a, a grown man. For a lot of people, I've only had a few male survivors come on this podcast and tell their story where their wife or girlfriend had a campaign against them, you know, doing things to them. For so many of these people, they just don't want to come forward because it just seems unmanly, I guess, to be having this happen. But why do you think some of these other policemen didn't want to tell their stories? Well, it's a fair question. I think, and this is just
0: me, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. In law enforcement, you're talking about a hyper-masculine, male-dominated, historically male-dominated profession. You don't show your weaknesses. This is why, you know, only in the last few years, we've really talked about officer wellness, about counseling, about dealing with conflict in your family. I mean, cops kill themselves more than suspects do. So it's a highly stressful job, traumatized daily. PTSD is rampant. The last thing you want to do is to show your other very hyper-masculine people and where you work with it. I'm a survivor, so hasn't been easy. Now we're, that's changing. We're getting more and more men talk about their experience. But the other part is, is that you know I, I tell people this all the time. Do you want to walk back into your trauma? And that's something people don't want to do. So I'm not faulting them, and I and I've told other men that I've met over the years who are prosecutors and judges and cops, you don't have to do this, but boy, if you did speak up, it would be to the audience who has the most power to stop it. Because if women could stop domestic sexual violence, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. Mm-hmm. Sure. And in some cases, the the officers are offenders. They didn't kick it. They started using it more. So here's the real incredible danger about this. When you train a young person to be a cop, you teach them how to use a gun, how to fight, how to interrogate, how to you know, question, how to you know, do a lot of things by necessity. You teach them how to do that. But if you're teaching someone who's an offender, you're building a, a super predator,
1: oh, God.
0: which is harder to detect, harder to investigate. We're teaching police leaders how to keep those people out of the ranks of law enforcement. You got to ask them the history before you hire them. And you got You got your background investigators have to be trained to understand what it means. What any one thing means could be the tip of the iceberg for someone who will wreak havoc in uniform. Because if I'm looking for targets as a DV offender or a sex offender, what better place to be than in a police uniform? It's like scout leader. Ask the Boy Scouts about it. They went bankrupt because of it. Yes. Catholic Church. Exactly. Because if I'm a predator and I'm looking for targets. You know, if I can find a home in a uniform, that's where I want to be. Of course, that's a whole other topic, but we're talking about a crime, how it affects all of us as adults. It's pretty, pretty amazing. This is, you know, this is, this is the big one. This is the, of all the violent crimes in society, this is where it happens. It's homes filled with domestic violence. Uh, Billy, I think you know this. Where children are exposed, this is the wellspring for tomorrow's crime. When you work in policing long enough, you see it. You see the five-year-old... Now the 20-year-old who's robbing banks. You see that progression. And we've spent trillions of dollars in this country on the war on drugs. We've, you know, and all these other reactive, you know, moments. But if we spent that money in prevention of stopping violence in the home, we wouldn't have prisons filled with Violent men today, I, I believe that, and a lot of homeless too stems from DV, doesn't it? It does. My wife, uh, who I met at the police department, Valerie, when but she left the police department, started a transitional housing program, the Mary Paris Center. It's a therapeutic two-year program. You come in with your family, you no rent, no utilities, and it's complete. Let's get you back on your feet. Many of the women over the year, over the last twenty years, they work with ten thousand victims are homeless. I'm talking about homeless veterans homeless, you know, corporate executives. So homelessness is one of the byproducts of of violence in the family when women are running away. And right now, and I'm not giving away any secrets, running across this country right now, there are thousands of women running right now from state to state, from offenders, from shelter to shelter. Shelters talk to one another. They take in victims from other parts of the country. So there's a bit of an underground railroad going on right now in the United States. With a steady stream of women and children running away from violent men.
1: Is it true that there are more, I don't know how this could ever be, uh, how the statistic could be found or created, but more homeless women than men? you think that holds up? It could be. It would, make, it would make perfect sense if it were because of the level of victimization
0: for women. Of course, there's other issues too. There's, you know, drugs Uh, you know people just lost their lost everything some big traumatic event occurred in their life Mm -hmm. but drugs are often paired with this and this is the other thing about narcotics and drugs we criminalized it all so people use drugs to medicate themselves you have to think about any alcohol so if i'm living in pain my only escape is to medicate myself yes and then when i do that Society looks down their nose at women who do that. and It's harder for them to get assistance. So it puts the victim in more peril. So I'm, by the way, self-medication is something police practice for decades. The alcoholism in the ranks of policing is rampant. It had been for years because we didn't offer psychological services to police. Now that's happening. But when you see someone trying to survive, this is the, another way to do it. It's
1: just, I've got, I've got to escape for a moment. And this is the way I do it. One of the things I was curious about is your mother. So, what became of her after you guys went on the run, and eventually you grew up and grew out and worked different jobs, and then eventually became a police officer? But so, what became of mom? When we left Texas
0: with the clothes on our back, she she worked in the restaurant industry. She she got a, had a restaurant in Columbia, Tennessee. Met a met another man, remarried. And lived violence free until uh, ninety eight. She passed away of, of cancer. Oh, okay, but you got to see me do the work. As a matter of fact, I, before I told anybody our experience, I got her permission, and I said I want to talk about this, and I did. And shortly after that, uh, Dateline at NBC called me. Somebody heard me speak, and Stone Phillips, who was the one of the narrators said i'm gonna to come to nashville and talk about your experience and and they did so i dateline came to nashville and we did a series called cries for help and the police department was behind it, and they'd let me do it and so we did a thing on children exposed to domestic violence and then after that i mean i it, it was a, a regular event i started talking about my family's experience and it was therapeutic i have to tell you, you know, i mean it, it really helped me process through it but it also gave me a sense of seeing a system that was broken And we can talk about that if you like.
1: Yes, go ahead.
0: So I made it to homicide as an investigator. I'd already, you know, training our officers on how to respond to domestic violence at our academy. And then but when I started working homicide with a bunch of experienced, really credible cops, I had a murder one night. A young woman had been strangled by her boyfriend, my partner, and I responded and he killed her and he laid her body across one of our railroad tracks here. He's trying to disguise the murder. We figured it out, and we arrested him. And I always felt, in, in those years, in the, in the 80s and part of the 90s, we were working about 100 murders a year. About a third were domestic-related. And it, we were constantly, I was con- physically, this is the thing, is, and I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to be grotesque, but physically putting women in a body bag. And as, you, as you're putting the body in a bag, as a survivor, I've seen my own, mother's face on the bodies of these women so i had to check myself you know i had to make sure that i wasn't losing my mind about what i was seeing but one of the things i knew i had to do i had to if i arrested someone i had to show a jury of 12 people who was taken from us it's cold it's evidence it's fingerprints it's blood splatter it's this it's that it's not real in a sense not a living breathing thing other than the survivors being the courtroom so I made sure that, that the story was told about the victim. And the way to do that is to ask the family. And I sit down with the mom and the dad and, and the friends. And I said, I need to get to know your, your, your daughter. And we know who did it. And we think we know why she was trying to get away from him. And the mother said to me, she called you. And I, and I said, ma'am, what? She said, no, she called you over and over and over again. She called you, the police. Would well, she be alive if she not called you? And you can't get mad at a homicide survivor. You, you're, if you are, you're insane. You, you have to have a certain, um, um, you, you can't make it personal. It's not your crisis. It's theirs. And I apologize. I said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I had no idea that she called the police in the past. But I'm going to find out about this. I'm going to let you know uh, as we move along. You know. And I went back to work. My captain was a really wonderful man. He was a fifties era cop. My father, my natural father was a career cop and a judge. So they were the same generation. I went into his office and I said, captain, I said, let me tell you what I've got. We got a suspect. You know, we got him, we got the body. We were working the case up now, but the mother told me the story. And I had the copies of the reports the prior reports. I said, I want to show you this. She called us again and again, and again, and we did nothing for her. Now she's dead. And he said, what's your point? And I said, when are we going to stop doing this? When, if we know what leads up to a homicide, and we, do, we know the precursors very well, what are we waiting on? It just seems like we're just waiting. The very best thing we do is a homicide investigator, and that's the top of the feeding chain in Belize. And we thought about preventing murders needed this lab. He said, we don't do that, Mark. We don't do prevention work here. You know, that old saying, homicide, you know, our day starts when your day ends.
1: So what is that line again?
0: Our day starts when your day ends.
1: Ah, oh, oh.
0: that The old That's the same. So I went back to work, and he said, and he told me get back to work, and I did because we prosecuted the guy. But after that, I started working on building something inside my police department. There was a homicide prevention unit, and I pushed for hard. And I found allies outside the agency and the mayor's office, the mayor's wife and city council members and prosecutors. And we all sat down finally and took our case to the city. And we got the largest police investigative unit in U.S. history to work domestic domestic violence in 1995. 39 total personnel working nothing but 23,000 domestic cases. And our murder rate started to decline. We got it down to about five in a few years. So we proved the old statement that, you know, homicide's is the only crime you can't prevent. You know, the FBI used to tell us that. If I had not been a victim for 10 years as a child, this is going to sound odd, Bill, but I don't think any of that would have happened. I don't think I would have had the, the energy and the understanding of what it means for a victim to call the police in a domestic violence case that could lead to a murder i think about my own mother all the while understanding that it could have been her that pushed me to change the culture inside policing and that culture has been contagious it's you see it across the country now
1: i was going to ask you the question about what is it that makes the fire burn so brilliantly in you and yet i know the answer already the same thing that's going on with me i'll interview survivors i'll meet survivors I talk with people at domestic violence agencies, but I'm trying to prevent the next Kristen Mitchell situation from happening. I know what it's like to be the parent, like you know what it's like to be on the receiving end or watch your mother going through this. And I see Kristen and all these people. I hear her coming through in different ways. She and I never had that conversation. I mean, the first that I knew about what was going on with this guy was when I got a call from a detective one night saying, we need to talk. And we have to talk in person. And I had no idea what we're going to be talking about. But, you know, it means so much to me. I can't have what I want. I can't have Kristen, but I can prevent the next one. And so, yeah, I knew where you're going with that, that it lit a fire in you as I have in me. Yours has been burning a lot longer because it happened a lot longer ago. When you say you saw your mother's face in these victims, I mean, do you actually feel like in a way physically... You, or did you feel it, or do you actually see it?
0: In the film, we talk about this. One of the first calls I responded to as an officer, as a lead officer, as a patrol officer, with my training officer, the door opened up, and this woman look, looked at me through a screen door, and she looked just like my mother. And I, I was—I couldn't even speak. I tell you, I was ready. You know, you, it's a year-long training program, six months in academy, six months in the field before you finally are allowed to be a cop. And I was ready, and... So she stood there, and she looked like a mother, and I, I, I couldn't even speak. And in the in the, that pause, she whispered, it's all right, he's asleep, you can leave now. And my training officer said, did she say we could go? And I said, yeah. He said, let's get out of here. That was the first real crossroads in my police career where I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And I asked his permission. He said, I, said, I want to talk to her. He said, go ahead. He went back to the patrol cars sent the car. And I crossed the threshold and interviewed her and made out the report, didn't make an arrest, but I spent time with her. And, I, and in that moment of doing something that my training officer would not do, I risked being ostracized by a culture that had settled into, here's how we handle domestics. And it's not what they told you in the police academy. But I'd heard it from police when I was a kid, my, threatening my mother with arrest police i mean there was, was a standard way of stopping a domestic violence call threaten everybody with arrest. matter of fact, there's laws around the country. We have a lawyer in Tennessee that says you cannot, as a police, threaten the crime victim with arrest it 's because of domestic violence, all those old bad habits the police and I saw that when I was a kid and I saw it when I was an adult cop and so I knew what I had to change. But here's the thing about changing (laughs) the government. You have to find a spot where you can do it and be stealthy and not uh, be a troublemaker. And I tried to navigate through that. It wasn't easy to do. And I got in trouble. I was more trouble than I was worth, I suppose. But I I managed to get in trouble a lot because I was asking those questions like my captain about what are we going to do to prevent murder? And that was going against the grain. That to me, when I had small victories, was boy, it was serious moment where I thought, this is for you, mother.
1: for you That's beautiful, yeah, yeah, wow,. that one got me yeah that's that's great. I don't think there's ever a time that I've given a talk where I don't stop. Before I go out to give the talk, go, go to a mic without uh, talking with my daughter.
0: No, I could, Bill, I, I, I completely understand that emotion. You know, you try to fight as a public speaker, and I've done a lot of that. You try to focus and take a deep breath, but it's just, I mean, especially here's the other thing in these events over the years that you're doing and I've done for years. The rooms filled with survivors. You can, it's almost like you can feel that energy coming off of people. It's like they don't say anything. I mean, in the film, we had a young guy an officer in Vernon, Texas. We were in a meeting, and he was. I was speaking. He was. He wouldn't say anything. He was looking at me. He wasn't talking. But as soon as we stepped outside, away from everybody else, he told me about his own survival as a child. The country is filled with survivors. There's just this amazing moment where. And I think when people see that, when they see people choking up and trying to get through the words and trying to get, they, they, that's, that's a real gift to them. Because they're thinking, I wish I could do that. I wish I could get up in front of a group like Bill and talk about my mother or my sister or, or my daughter.
1: This concludes part one of two parts with Lieutenant Mark Wynn. Be sure to listen to part two on the When Dating Hurts podcast. See our show notes regarding Lieutenant Mark Wynn's new documentary entitled, This is Where I Learned Not to Sleep. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell at That's Bill Mitchell at